the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Uh, today we look at one of the most famous passages in Scripture together, and uh, no doubt I would say it's the most famous psalm in the Bible, and that's Psalm 23. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one, we've got pew Bibles. You can open up there, and we'll be in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd is a psalm of confidence that tells us who our God is for us as he leads us besides those still waters, brings peace to us as he takes us through Good moments as well as in bad moments, the valley of the shadow of death. He is the good shepherd. He's also a good host that puts a table before us. There's nothing our enemies can do about it. He blesses us beyond imagination. And he's going to bring us into his house. And he's going to let us be there for all eternity. This is Psalm 23. We're going to look at today the first part. The Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23, one through four. But before we do that, let me pray once more for us and then we're, we're gonna dive in, folks. Lord, as Wes was praying just a moment ago, I wanna stand in agreement with that. Lord, there are many of us here this morning where we feel the weight of what is we are going through on our shoulders and we need to be reminded once again that you are still the good shepherd even if we need to hear it for the thousandth time. And there's some of us here who need to hear it for the first time, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you let your word go forward this, mo this morning as you desire for it to go forth in this precious passage that reveals who you are for your people. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Good Shepherd. Amen. Psalm 23, friends, and it is, it is the passage that helpfully demonstrates everything that the Psalms are all about. I love Psalm 23. It is that message in that first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, has given comfort to Christians throughout the centuries. The lines are poetic that give a, illustrate a picture, put it in the mind. When you think of that imagery, he makes me lie down by green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. I just think of Jesus standing on the banks of a river and he's calling us and says, come over here, let me, let me show you where you can have, have that peace that you've been looking for. It is, it is brief and has a rhythm to it that so many, like I've been blessed to have, have memorized, committed to heart uh, since I was a child. And it is a powerful passage. I had a brother who... Uh, was talking with me last week and he was talking about how he's learning to read the Bible and he wants to take the Bible literally. And so I said, you wanna take the whole Bible literally? And he says, well, of course, I, want, I believe what it says. And I said, are you sure you wanna take that whole Bible literally? You read the Song of Solomon sometime. 
You read that book, I don't, you better not take that literally. You have some problems on your hands if you do that. The same thing is true for this. It is poetry that paints images in our minds. David could have given us a whole paragraph, like the way Paul does, just listed things out, be very linear and say, let me give you a whole paragraph describing to you God's provision over you. But by just a couple lines, he's able to say so much more with less. It reminds us that our good shepherd is the provider for us this morning. And so if you're here today and you struggle with belief in this reality, for those of us who are on the mountaintop, for those of us who are in the valley, this passage is for all of us today. And so let's go through the first few passages. We're going to divide this in half today. And let's look at that first line. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you were to read this as an Israelite right out of the gate, you would be thinking about how Yahweh God was the good shepherd in Israel, for Israel in the wilderness. He had provided manna from the sky and he had provided water by a rock in the wilderness. He had been uh, present by way of a pillar of fire at night to guide the Israelites. He had been present by a he had been present by way of a cloud by day for 40 years. He was the good shepherd in the wilderness. This would have come to your mind naturally if you were an Israelite reading this passage. But for you and I who stand on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we read this passage, we can't help but think of John 10. And so you don't have to go there. You can if you'd like. But consider for a moment that Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10 as well. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so for David, Yahweh reveals himself as the good shepherd. For you and I, who see more light, more of what we would call progressive revelation as the Bible unfolds, we understand that the good shepherd of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is the one that the Father who has sent in the person of Jesus Christ for us, John 10. And so what I would recommend to you is if you have a pen, write over Psalm 23 on top, good, put John 10, and then if you were to go to John 10, put Psalm 23 right there, and you see that there's a line where the Bible interprets itself there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I have to say this, before we go any further. This passage messed me up for about 15 years because I did not understand that line, I shall not want. That makes no sense for, for, for a fifth grader. The Lord is my shepherd on the one hand, but on the other hand, I don't want him. I don't understand that at all. The Lord is my shepherd, great, but I don't want him. That's how I always understood it for about 10 years until I came across a different translation that said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. You see, you see what he's saying there? Or as I heard one little girl say this way, the Lord is my shepherd, I don't want anything else. You see? The Lord is my shepherd, all my needs are met in him. And so he provides what we need time and time again. And ultimately that need is met in the person of Christ. 
through the Holy Spirit. That's the first part. The second part, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And when you read that and you really take time to meditate upon it, do you realize that this is for you, Christian? God's self-description of himself is not of an indifferent, non-caring God who just lets the universe unfold on its own, or like one of the Greek gods, capricious and ready to smite you with a lightning bolt whenever you mess up just a little bit. He is a good shepherd. He doesn't ask. He makes you lie down in green pastures. You need that. He leads you beside still waters. While other descriptions of the Bible describe God as awesome and terrifying for the Christian, while he is that for the Christian, he's a good shepherd who brings us safely into his peace. So you read Psalm 2 here, you're going to see, Psalm 23, 2 here, you see there's that imagery of green pastures and still waters, but then it gets more precise in verse 3. It then says, he restores my soul. That's what he's doing. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. You might argue that the way he restores the soul, if you were to go back to Psalm 19, 7, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, where it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The very thing that takes care of your soul is when his word speaks into your life. And so... Friend, are you wounded? Does your soul ache this morning? Are you like Elijah hiding in the rocks after what was supposed to be a great victory on Mount Carmel and then things didn't unfold the way you thought they were gonna unfold and you find yourself in a depression and you're saying to the Lord, I alone am left, I'm the only faithful one, everybody is doing things wrong, wrong way and Lord, don't you see how I've been faithful and you're not helping me in this situation? And for you, perhaps the Lord wants to speak in that still small voice. And in that still small voice, tell you exactly what you need to hear. That he cares more about your mission for your life than you care about. That he has things around the corner to, unwork, to unravel and work things out together for your good in a way that you may not see now. He is the one who is in charge and in control. And if you follow that good shepherd, he's gonna take you on those right paths so much to be fearful about, friends, in our culture today. So much to be fearful when I look at the news. It's internationally, politically, socially, all of those things. There's enough to make the heart anxious. And yet the sheep follow the good shepherd because they know his voice. Can you hear his voice? Were you listening to it last week? What is he trying to say to you? Just things that he wants to say. And by speaking to nourish your soul. These first three verses, I don't know a person who's not a fan of them. Who wouldn't like Psalm 23, one through three? Look at who God is for you. And there's no denying this. But the question I have is, what is the ultimate purpose for why God does what he does? Is it ultimately about you and I, what he does, what he does, what he makes us lie down green pastures and all of that? Was God lonely and needed company? 
You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. That's how some people understand that lyric. Oh, was God like Tom Cruise when he said, you complete me? We are not the center of God's universe. He is the center of his own universe. I remember when I was in college and what got me on the right path, I remember hearing sermons from, from, from some of those guys like Chandler, and preached that sermon, God is for God, and I realized that God does not exist to be my cheerleader. God ultimately is for his own purposes. He's for, God is for God. He is there to provide for you. He loves you, he cares for you, but ultimately, it's about him and what he's doing. What's the chief reason that the good shepherd takes care of the sheep? Answer, for his namesake, for his namesake. He is, he is for you, but behind that provision for you spiritually, mentally, physically, all of those things is the preservation of his name. That's what he's doing. <laughs> I just wonder if that offends maybe our sensibilities. I thought God was really into me, and I'm finding out that God is really into God. And that doesn't seem to compute. That does not go with a lot of modern-day evangelicalism. And so what I want to do right now is I want to give you some verses to remind you that God is for his own name. And these are verses, some of them that are not described, we, we don't put some of these on a coffee cup, but it's important that we hear it. Let me give you a few of these. Let our, let's set our eyes on things above and not on things below. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. You read this. The Lord tells Israel that the reason he defers his anger towards them is this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's what Isaiah says. Let's keep going. Ezekiel 36, 22. God is concerned about fulfilling his purposes so that his name and his reputation would be demonstrated correctly amongst the nations around Israel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. It's not ultimately anything that you did, but, but here's the reason why. For the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, God acts to deliver Israel not because they're awesome, not because they did anything worthy, but for his own name. Let's keep going. Just stick with the Psalms, for, for example. Psalm 8.1, let me just read this. O Lord, this is what we covered. We've already done this. Psalm 8.1. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your... There it is. In all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. How about a really unpopular passage in the Bible? Romans 9. God raises up Pharaoh for his own purposes to do as he wills. For this purpose, I have raised you up. Remember the Exodus? I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He hardens whom he hardens and he softens whom he softens and he does that for his namesake. That's in the Bible. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. How about this? He predestines whom he wills for his own glory. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. God is about exalting his own name. Does that fit with how you think about who our Lord is? And maybe while you're thinking about that, have you thought further and gone, isn't that kind of selfish for someone to exalt their own name? Why is it selfish when you and I exalt our own name? If I said, I want you to promote the name of Aaron Garza, I want you to sing it from the, from the rooftops, I want you to post about it on social media, I want you to talk about it, I want you to have my name written, on, written all over the place, you can put that on your coffee cup, you would go, you have a problem, right? Okay? That's self-exaltation. That's selfish. But why is it that when God does it, it's selfless? How does God get off the hook? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Have you thought about that, really? Doesn't that seem to be quite prideful of our Lord to exalt his own name? Have you ever, you ever thought about this? Why is it not prideful? Let me give you a quote from Piper in his book, Providence which I think helpfully demonstrates why God is not prideful in his self-exaltation. He says, but what if God's continual acting for his own glory proved to be less like an insecure, self-enhancing, needy bully and more like the star professional basketball player who drives his Porsche into the neighborhood because he genuinely loves inner city kids and wants to give them the unimaginable pleasure of playing with their hero. What if God's calling attention to his glory turned out to be less like a quack doctor who hangs out a sign that he's the best and more like a real doctor hanging out a sign because he, in fact, is the best and he alone can do the procedure that will save the community from the spreading disease? In other words, what if in the end we discover that the beauty of God turns out to be the kind that comes to the climax in being shared? And what if the attitude we thought was mere self-promotion was instead the pursuit of sharing the greatest pleasure possible for all who would have it? Do you see the difference? The difference between my self-exaltation, your self-exaltation, and God's self-exaltation is that when you and I do it, it's counterfeit. It's actually not true that we're the center of the universe. But when God exalts himself and he shows himself to you, he's demonstrating, he's showing you that he actually, he actually is worthy and he wants you to share in the reality of who he is. So he wants you to wake up and go, get the focus off of you and get it on him. Because when you do, you do it for his namesake. That's where you find your deepest joy. That's when you are satisfied by peaceful streams because that peace is found in our triune Lord. Have you ever found yourself going, only he could have done it? And you put your head in your hands and you go, there's no other way that could have worked out. I know I have found myself doing that. When you do that, you are demonstrating that he is worthy and only his name, by his name could that have happened. You're waking up to reality. And so I want to say to you this morning, God is for you. Psalm 23, 1 through 3. But ultimately, God is for God, and that's the way it's supposed to be, for his namesake. Behind it all, God is for God. The next part, verse 4.
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Not only do we have confidence in this good shepherd, but he comforts us, protects us in that dark valley. Sometimes the righteous path that the good shepherd takes you on makes its way down into a valley that you didn't expect you would have to go through. On January 19th at 11.48 p.m., this is of last year, we, I was in the delivery room and Justine gave birth to our precious uh, one-and-a-half-year-old now, Samuel. And uh, we just found ourselves elated that we had another child. Two weeks after that, Justine, I was with August, and Justine was with Samuel, uh, taking him to a two-week checkup. And I remember sitting by my phone and looking at my phone, and Justine had sent me a message, and it said, they are sending him by ambulance to Valley Children's Hospital for a fast heart rate, faster than they have ever heard. Can you meet me at the hospital? I, I read that 10 times. I was just, I was like, this, this is actually happening to me right now. And I was just there for about 30 seconds. And looking back on it, I go, what if, what if they had realized that he had a heart, fast heart rate? What, what if the appointment was the day before or the day after? Your mind starts going there. And so once the moment sunk in, I pawned August off on one of our pastors at the church, gave, gave him for the day. And then I got in my car and um, sped through traffic, broke every single law that was possible to get half an hour across town to uh, Valley Children's. And when I got there, there was a security guard who at the time, because of COVID restrictions, said only one parent can be in the ER with, uh, with a child. And it was in that moment where I decided to be very not pastoral and say, say some things to that man about how you need to let me in or a few other things. And so my pastoral touch was very gone at that moment. And so we went back and forth. I'm on the phone. The nurses, I'm talking with Justine on the phone. The nurses hear that I'm outside and trying to get my way in. And they let me come in. And I remember getting in and there was, we were in the trauma room. And Samuel is, is hooked up to all of these little wires. And there's probably about 15 people, it seemed like, in the room. Justine was just taking in everything. I think just kind of stunned in the moment. My mind immediately went to worst case scenarios, like what's the end game here? How is this all going to work out? And I was trying to diagnose how the situation was. Remember, my mother has found this interesting because she's a nurse. As I've described how as a layman who knows nothing, I'm looking at the nurses and the doctor's faces to see how are they processing the situation. And there was one nurse that was just way too chipper for the environment that was there. And I was going, why are you so calm? Uh, you almost seem like you're just casually walking around. And looking back on it, I'm so glad she was that way because she was actually more in control than the doctor who was on call in that moment. And so uh, they tried to give him some medicine. It didn't work. And they put an AED um, on him. And it, it took up his whole little body. He's only about two weeks. His whole little body went all over his chest, uh, the whole thing. And they shocked him. I shocked Samuel, and they said, clear, shock. Uh, his little, little body went up just immediately like that. And um, it was followed by crocodile tears. I remember that. And his heart rate was still too high. And 
I remember one of the nurses cursing, and then the next thing they said was, well, let's try it again. And so they upped the, the waters this time, and same thing happened. Clear shock, crocodile tears again, and this time the heart rate started to go down, and we just prayed that it would stay underneath 200 beats per minute at that point. And eventually, by God's mercy, it went down to about 150, and the doctor moved on to the next crisis, and we're just sitting there. And I just remember going, why did we have to see all that? We're in the trauma room. Surely other children have died right here where my little two-week-old infant is. And anyways, so we were told that Samuel has SVT, basically an abnormal pathway in which his heart carries an electrical charge, and it makes the heart move a little bit more quickly. And when he's seven years old, he'll be a candidate, we're told, for uh, potentially having a surgery to correct that, or it can go away all on its own. And so it made me begin to think, as anyone who goes through situations like this, where, where does God fit into the mix, right? I, I want you to know, there's been a number of you over the last two or three weeks that have found yourself in the hospital. I think about this every single time I go to see you, because I know that when you're having your moments, I know what it's like to have my own moment. There's that incredible uncertainty about what's going to happen next. I started thinking about what, what is God doing? And as I was reading, pondering, meditating, here's what I came up with. There's three options before us when we suffer. First, either Satan is in charge, no one is in charge, or God is in charge. Consider those options. If Satan is in charge of your suffering, I don't know how you could despair more. Your enemy is pulling the levers on your life and there's nothing you can do about it. And he does as he pleases at his own mercy. That would be terrifying if Satan was in charge. Second one, if no one is in charge, what then? If no one is in charge and you're suffering, when it happens, what does that mean? You can assign meaning to your suffering, your pain and suffering, but at the end of the day, at bottom, objectively, it has no ultimate purpose. It actually really is only an inconvenience. It's an inconvenience, and it's up to mindless, unfortunate chance. When a car wreck happens, a loved one dies, I was reading in the news, a man goes berserk and takes out the life of three children. How does that devastate a family? That's suffering right there. If it's all up to chance, that's horrifying in its, in its own when you really think about it. But the third option, which I don't know if we take enough time to think about, that God is in charge. Think about this. That God oversees our suffering in such a way where he is guiltless, morally guiltless by permitting it to happen in our lives, and yet he accomplishes it for his glory and for our good. In his mysterious providence, he does this. Consider the example of Job. Job, I've been reading Job for about 15 years now, and Job has continued to throw me for a loop because I have taken the time to get into the wording of, of the first two chapters. Job has incredible suffering that is brought upon him and what does he say that we quote all the time, but we may not think about? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You think about the meaning of that. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. At the end, Job knows that when his family is taken out, all of his livestock is taken out, horrible tragedy happens to him. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. But before that, he says, the Lord is the one who has taken away. At bottom, the Lord is the one who oversees his suffering. If you're not convinced, let me just keep going further. Satan goes before the Lord, but he is the means for Job's suffering. God is the one who gives permission twice for Job's suffering. It's not fire from hell that goes down on Job's family. It is fire from God if you read Job 1.16. You get to the end of the passage, the end of the book, in chapter 42. It talks about his family comes to him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought upon him. I am just quoting Bible to you right now. You, if you've read Job, you know what I'm talking about. You have to confront this. That at bottom, it is the Lord who oversees Job's suffering, and he is the one who is in charge of this heavenly court contest that takes place. And when Job says, I want an audience with the Lord to defend myself, the Lord shows up and he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words and without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? That's not the kind of language I say to other people when I'm by their bedside at the hospital. I don't say that. What kind of good shepherd goes before Job and says, dress like a man, right? Essentially, he's saying, the Lord is God and you are not. It's not, not the kind of words that a grief counselor says. And so I'm pointing this out to you, putting it right in your face, so that you would confront the realities of Scripture and also be confronted that despite maybe some of our hell believes that God would be in my view of how God is good, he would never allow pain and suffering. That doesn't line up with the Bible. That doesn't line up with our lived lives. And I'm pointing this out to you. I want us to think deeply about this now because I happen to know that the worst time to be working out your beliefs on God and how he works is when you're in the midst of a crisis. And if you are not prepared beforehand, friend, you can find yourself turning to bitterness and anger towards God. I'm sure many of us can think of examples of others and maybe ourselves and how we have found ourselves in moments like these. I'm trying to get us to think now so that we are prepared. If you end with the book of Job, though, as the Lord takes him through the valley of the shadow of death, I think you'll be disappointed. If you only read up to chapter 42, you have to go to your New Testament. And you will be reminded that while you are confronted with what seems like an innocent sufferer in Job, there is another who is the truly innocent sufferer. The thing about our Lord is that he doesn't even let himself off of the hook. One author puts it this way. We need to know that Jesus Christ bowed his head into the greatest storm, the storm of divine justice for us so we can hear a voice of love from the Holy God, from Holy God. He took the condemnation we deserve so God can accept us. Jesus is the ultimate Job, the only innocent sufferer. As Job was naked, penniless, and he took on physical pain, so was Jesus homeless, stripped, and naked, and tortured on the cross. While Job was relatively innocent, Jesus was absolutely, perfectly innocent. And while Job felt God abandoning him, Jesus actually experienced the real absence of God. 
For those of you who may be dealing with your own crisis and your own suffering, I cannot answer the the question of your, your why questions, but I do know the where question, and that is to point you to the cross, and it is to show you that though you may be suffering, there's another innocent sufferer who has already suffered on your behalf. I don't know the answer to the where why question. I know the answer to the where question, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He comprehends and can counsel you through your suffering for those of us who would say, why would the good shepherd lead me in the valley of the shadow of death? Maybe you should take a moment to realize the idea of this good shepherd, that he himself will not call you to go where he himself has not already gone. He has already gone into the valley of the shadow of death for you. The good shepherd is the one who has taken on death for us. One of my passions has been for college students having been a young adults pastor. And the reason why I want to take time this morning for us to think about this valley of the shadow of death is because there's some of us in here who are in a good season. Man, you're, you're by peaceful streams and it's a good deal right now. And maybe you're in an experience, those of you who have, have been or are at Tabor College, great Christian experience. And my question for you is, are you going to be ready when you graduate? Are you going to be ready for what comes afterwards? Or will God have to take you into the valley and show you where your idols really are? There might be some idols there that you don't even see. And he may have to take you there, but in the fire, he's gonna do it for your own good, friend. Are you ready for that? The rod and staff that's here, it's there to protect the sheep and it's to drive out the wolves. He protects his own and he drives out the wolves. I pray that you would pray like this, knowing who your God is in this passage. That you would say, okay, Lord, if this is who you said you were, I need you to act now. There's those of us who are dealing with serious stuff. It's an okay prayer to say, Lord, you said you were going to be the good shepherd and you were going to protect me with your rod and staff. I need you to do that. The Lord already knows what's in your heart, friend. Be honest before him and say, Lord, this is what your word says. I, I plead with you, would you act now? By the way, rod and staff, the good shepherd, what a model for our under shepherds here at Bethesda. What a model for elders, that we would be the kind of people, gentlemen, when we look at Psalm 23, we would go, Lord, how are you calling us as who are sheep, who are also called to be shepherds? How are you calling us to live in such a way where we protect the precious members of God's flock here. We, we care about sound teaching. We don't let error come in. We let the word of God be primary. We protect the sheep and we drive out the wolves. That is the example set for elders in God's church. Friends, I'm telling you things that are very familiar. I know that. The truth is we don't turn to this good shepherd enough. Perhaps this is your life. The clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me to deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in the circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it all done. For my ideal is with me. Deadliness and my need for approval, they drive me. 
They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My inbox overflows. Surely fatigue and time pressure shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the bonds of frustration forever. Maybe that's more your life right now, even though you know what this book says about the good shepherd. What I love about Psalm 23 is that just because I may be living that reality of what I just read to you, it does not wipe off the pages. It does not wipe off of the pages of Scripture what these four precious verses have to say. The law confronts every single one of us this morning, and it reminds us that you should go more often to the Good Shepherd, and you know that you don't. That you should turn to Him and let Him give you peace, and you've been turning to other places where you, where you will never be satisfied. We know that we should go to the good shepherd, and yet we don't. That's what the law confronts us with this morning. But the grace of the gospel reminds us that despite our unfaithfulness to turn to him, these verses are still here, and he is still for us and not against us. And he will continue being for us because he will be faithful to his name. He will be faithful to that name. I was reminded from Brother Anthony this last week is that God does not love the person that you are trying to be. He loves the person for who you actually are right now. He's not in love with some sort of future version of who you will become. He loves the person that you look at in the mirror every single morning with all of your flaws, all of your warts, all of your problems. And so I want you to hear the message of Psalm 23 today. It is not calling you, let's, let's move on beyond mere moralism. Do better and try harder. I would rather say, look at the God of Psalm 23 and rest in the reality of who he will always be, even if I fail him who he will be for me, and out of the rest of who he has given me and what he has made me to be, then I act and then I live in response to the gospel, not to justify myself before him. And so if you find yourself living in fatigue and, and working and grinding, it leads to my deep depression, it hounds my soul, those kinds of things, turn to the good shepherd today. He is still here once again. You may be in a good season or in a bad season, but it does not mean in either way he won't be right there alongside of you. He has not changed since the last time you have thought about him. He's unchangeable. And so he promises to prop us up. And so, brothers and sisters, hold on to these precious verses. Bind them to your heart. Put them right there. No matter what you go through, he is right there. And when you find yourself in that moment where only you could be propped up by his strength, I believe we're going to find ourselves saying, the Lord is my shepherd. It is true that I don't want anything else. That's what my hope for us would be, and that would be the kind of church we would be. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.